Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So today we want to talk about the organizational culture inside law firms. The legal industry, unfortunately, has a reputation for long hours, intense competition, and all too frequently employee burnout. So change is overdue. And for the sake of the people working in the firms, it's time to challenge these norms. Some firms have come to the realization that culture matters and that by prioritizing the well-being of their employees, they are increasing the success and profitability of their businesses. There are also firms who would like to improve their workplace culture but don't know where to start. So joining us today to discuss the benefits of cultivating a positive company culture is Paul Spiegelman. Paul is the co-founder of the Small Giants Community, a peer group of purpose-driven business leaders. Paul holds a bachelor's degree in history from UCLA and received his JD from Southwestern University. He practiced law for two years before starting Barrel Health, where he was the co-founder and CEO. He is also the founder and chairman of the Barrel Institute and was the chief culture officer at Stereocycle. Paul is a sought-after speaker and a New York Times best-selling author on leadership, employee engagement, entrepreneurship, culture, and leading a purpose-driven life. His book, Why Is Everyone Smiling? The Secret Behind Passion, Productivity, and Profit includes low or no-cost practices that can impact the lives of employees and the success of small or large businesses. He has made numerous radio and TV appearances, and his views have been featured in the Wall Street Journal and Inc. magazine. He is currently a columnist for Forbes.com and has been honored with the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you guys. So, Paul, after you began your legal career, when did you first realize the significance of culture and engagement for organizational success? Can you talk about the culture that you encountered while working in a law firm? Well, my law, my law uh, career, as you said, was short, uh, just a little under two years, and I worked with my dad. So my dad had a, a small practice with just one other lawyer as a partner, and then I joined I was there for a couple of years before I left and started my own business. And uh, I'll be honest, I never thought about culture as part of the law firm. And I actually didn't even think about culture as part of my own business till we were several years into it and realized through the first number of employees that we had that what we were doing was something unique to them and something that seemed to matter to them. And so we listened to that. And, and ultimately realized that there was an opportunity here to develop something special, to create a, a business model that would be focused on employee engagement. And that really became my calling card for the rest of my career. And I'm still very dedicated to that whole idea. But we literally fell into it. It wasn't a plan. I love that. Uh, why do you believe that cultivating a powerful culture played a pivotal role in growing your own business and attracting top-notch employees? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, again, once we figured out that we 
could do something special by having a unique environment for our people to work in by showing them that we cared about them in the totality of their lives. If you think about our business that we had, it was a healthcare business. It was a call center where we contracted with hospitals all over the U.S. to provide referrals to physicians on these hospital staff. And so people from the community would call in looking for doctors. And so we had to represent these hospitals and do that well. Um, but you're talking about a call center, a business you don't think about high uh, culture or happy people. You're thinking a boiler, boiler room operation with low margins and, uh, and a very tough environment. And we just decided that we weren't going to run the business that way, that we were going to do it based on uh, creating a place where people loved up to get up every morning and come to work. And um, even they were single moms and making you know $30,000 a year, we were going to show them through caring and gratitude that they meant something to us. And we started to see an impact on the business. We saw that not only were the employees happier, but they, could, they would do a better job uh, with our customers, with the people that were calling in, with our hospital customers. And we saw this relationship between employee engagement and customer loyalty. And then we saw another relationship, which was that once we had that customer loyalty, that that would drive profit into our business, such that we were able to be a premium provider and charge more than our competitors because our customers valued the culture and were willing to pay a premium for that. So we could take that, that profit, invest it back into our people, giving them better tools and resources to do their jobs. We called that the circle of growth. If we invest primarily in our people, that's going to generate customer loyalty. That's going to drive profit into the business, which we can reinvest in our people, and the cycle will simply continue. And that's something that we, we have found that didn't work just in our business, but it really works in any business if you take the time uh, to concentrate it. And I certainly understand that for law firms and how they were built and the history of them, some like other industries, they weren't really wired that way. So some of this is kind of a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's impressive that that you um, came to this realization with the call center because, like you said, that's a rough industry. There's a lot of turnover, a lot of you know disgruntled employees. And it's funny because when you do um, call into a place and you're only hearing someone over the phone, you get a, a pretty clear picture of their attitude and their level of happiness. So I, I think that's interesting that you were able to um, convey that to your customers in such a successful way. So when you started your law career, you're at your dad's firm, it's small, so it's not really the big law experience. And so there's a lot of, um, it's a stereotype, but based in reality, big law, like you may walk in and they have a glass front yoga room and they tell you that you have unlimited personal leave, but then you notice nobody's in the yoga room or, you know, those, those kind of things, which is actually the culture. So when you work with a new organization, how do you effectively convey the importance of the real culture to their leadership and not just, you know, kind of giving it lip service by throwing those things out? It's a great question. You know, it's not about the ping pong or the pool table, right. um, though, though, if they're used and they're there, uh, that, that is nice. But, um, and I don't, I don't blame those that don't know where to start or don't know how to do it or fi- figure that they, if they put something like that in there, that's going to, that's going to change the culture. The, the reality is it's not. And no matter what industry we're in, I always say that we're in the relationship business. It's about the relationships we have with the various stakeholders in our business, whether it's our own team, um, our customers, our vendors, our suppliers, uh, the community in general. And it's about building trust in those relationships. And that's the most important thing. And so for leaders in law firms, uh, it's first to recognize that that culture is about those relationships and that leadership is about our ability to build and motivate and train teams and create consistent practices around these cultures. Culture is a process like any other process in a company, and it deserves the same attention to any other standard operating procedure we put into place. In other words, we have to institutionalize the culture and make it a repeatable process that starts with the leadership. And I'll be honest that if we have a leader of a a business or a law firm and they don't get it, they don't just sponsor it, but they don't walk, they don't walk the talk, it's not going to survive. And so it starts at that level. And then we have to give permission 
to those that are doing the work, whether it's the next generation of leaders or the people on the front line, you know, in a law firm, it could be the, the administrative assistants or, or people that are, um, uh, you know, cleaning up at the end of the day. I mean, everybody's a stakeholder and we want to show them the same sort of attention. But, but as leaders in law firms, again, that's not where our training came from. I came from the healthcare industry and you'd be shocked that the, culture in hospitals is is some of the worst of any industry. And yet you have these people that have come with a heart for service. Um, the best-selling book I wrote was about culture in hospitals. And, and the fact is our nurses are miserable. And so they're not going to do as great a job at serving the, the, the patient. And we used to have all these terms that said, you know, patients come first and customers come first. Well, if we don't fix ourselves, we're not going to be able to fix the patient. And it's the same thing in law firms. So those administrators and doctors and nurses weren't trained beyond actually doing their job. They weren't trained how to live and play in the sandbox together. And the same thing comes with uh, leaders in law firms, very smart people, highly educated, uh, very talented at their work. But when it came to developing those interpersonal relationships that were required to make those businesses thrive and to develop these cultures, these were foreign concepts to them. I think that's so important. I mean, that's definitely the key is relationships. And especially when people come to work, they want to feel like they have that connection and they're not just mm -hmm. coming and sitting at their desk and, you know, they leave at the end of the day and, and they don't know what other people are doing in other departments and there's no connection. So yeah, the disconnect and we're yes. spending so much of our lives at work. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What are the key elements of fostering a positive company culture within a law firm and how do you assess and then address these aspects when collaborating with a new law firm? I think it's really important to do that assessment first and, and whether you're doing that internally with your own people and own resources or you bring in an outsider to kind of kick the tires and help you understand what we have to look at the lay of the land right now. What's the history? What are people feeling? Uh, is this an organization that asks its employees how they feel? Do we do employee satisfaction surveys? Do we have various ways of getting formal and informal feedback along the way? How often do we do things like one-to-ones? And I don't mean just the fact that we see each other 10 times a day walking down the hall, <laughs> but do we stop, sit across from each other and just say, how you doing? How you feeling? What's going on? I mean, we're just all grinding and managing those clients and selling new clients and dealing with the pressures of, of the, the legal system. But we've got to stop the train every once in a while and just assess where we are. And so when we go into a new organization, the first thing we're going to do is to, see, to say, do they get it? To look at the leaders. Do the leaders understand the, the nature of the culture today? Um, are there a sense of purpose and values and a commitment in this firm that go beyond the poster on the wall or the plaque in the lobby? Is it, how do they live these values on a day-to-day -day basis? How do they make decisions every day based on these values? So it's just repeatedly having these practices and like I said, institutionalizing them. But quite often what we see, and this is not just with law firms, is that there'll be a, rec a recognition by, you know, a the senior partner or the board that says, yeah, we need to do something in this regard. We need to pay attention to this, but we don't know where to start. And so the first thing I say when we're thinking about starting a journey like this is number one, realizing it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. This is not a project with a beginning and end that you're going to be able to check off. This is the way you are and who you are over time. And that's going to continue to be redefined and you have to be able to commit to that. Then you have to be vulnerable, number two, with your own team. So if you have a senior leader or whoever is going to sponsor this work that's able to sit in front of a group and say, look, we've been able to understand what our culture is. It's, it's probably not where we want it to be, but we understand the value and the connection between engaging our own team and building a better, more thriving practice and a longer term enduring business. So we're committed to doing what's right and investing in that culture. Third is the commitment to be inclusive in this process. So we don't want a top-down approach. 
we want that leader to say, and by the way, I'm not sure exactly how to go down this road. I want to do it with you. And we're going to partner around this and we're going to try some things and some things are going to work and some things are not going to work. And we're going to go and do it together. And that sort of genuine vulnerability by a senior leader or a group of leaders goes a long way. Because when you haven't lived this way for your whole career, when you haven't been a part of this organization, the trust isn't quite there. And everybody's looking at you and going, hmm, what's this about? Is this the flavor of the month? Are they just trying to do something because everybody else is doing it? Are they really committed to it? And in order to gain that trust, you're going to have to to walk that talk on a long-term basis. But the results, when you do that and you include other people in the process and you take their ideas and you implement their ideas, it can absolutely transform uh, the way that firm operates. And then you start to see these connections. You start to see the results in not only greater engagement, but even in the financial results of the organization. Those are all excellent points. And, and I think you're, when you're talking about walking the talk, if those if the leaders aren't invested, so they've hired you, you come in, you come in with all of these wonderful things that they can start to implement. But if they don't go on vacation, if they don't say, you know, I'm stressed out, what, what can we do? Everyone below, you're right, they're not going to feel safe <laughs> speaking up or taking advantage of the changes in the culture. So I love that it, it's bottom up, but I think that, you know, absolutely, you've got to get the leaders on board, like you said. You talked about in your call center that you kind of fell into these discoveries because when you're when you started really valuing uh, and caring about your employees, that turned into like much more um, a higher client satisfaction. So inside the law firm, what's happening right now is artificial intelligence is scaring attorneys to death because you know they think they can be replaced by the robots. You know that's going on everywhere, and so one of the things that I think a lot of them need to realize is that what they still have is the human factor. So can you talk about in the law firm, the direct connection between engaged employees and then tangible returns on investment? That's the way a lot of times you're going to get a hook from the owners of the firm. So if you are engaging with your employees, how is this going to affect client satisfaction? Is it going to show up the same way it did in your call center? Well, I, I think it will. And I don't think it matters what what business that you're in. Uh, mm -hmm. You talked about the frontline employees and I, I've got a 21-year-old daughter who's now applying for jobs. Really hard to even get an internship and everybody's ghosting you. Nobody's responding to you. And one of the things that uh, she has told me stories about is how she is on first or second interviews with these companies. And these are well-known companies with great reputations. And yet the response that she's getting from those frontline people is just total lackadaisical, uninterested. They're doing nothing to make her excited about wanting to be a part of that firm. And it's not until she gets to the third or fourth interview when it's the actual hiring manager or the person that she might report to, does she start to see that optimism um, around the company. And so I, I shake my head and I said, well, what a wasted opportunity that they're throwing people at the front line to make a bad impression of, of an otherwise good company. Why is that? Why are they doing that? Well, guess what? They don't know. And if they knew that that was happening, they would be shocked. And the only reason that that person has that kind of attitude is that they don't care. They don't, they're not treated well themselves. They don't feel valued. So they can be the frontline impression of that otherwise great company and create a really bad impression. And so the when we start to show people that we generally care about them at every level of the organization, and that can be the receptionist at the law firm, um, or, or it could be the uh, administrative assistant when you walk down the hall, um, before you even get to the, to the legal staff, um, that's going to start to make a huge difference because they're going to sit up straighter, they're going to smile, they're going to make a wonderful impression. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I walked into my doctor's office for my annual physical and I see the front office person there who I didn't recognize. I'm not sure how long she had been there. And she just says, hey, Paul, how are you? And I just <laughs> thought, oh my God, this is awesome. Why can't everybody be like you? 
And I just immediately put me in a good mood. And I, and I went in and I told my doctor who I've known for years, I said, that's how you start a relationship. And you've got to understand that, that, that when you have those smiling people up front, it changes the customer's day from the very start. So we have to have an awareness of the impression that's being made at every level in our organization with that customer. And when I said early on that uh, we didn't know that culture was important to us, you know, it wasn't until our first employees, we had maybe 10, 12 who said, you know, this is a really special place to work. And we said, well, what makes it special? My, my brothers and I, who my two brothers and I started our business together, we never had run a business before. We weren't entrepreneurs. We just kind of fell into this and started to, to do it. I said, well, you generally seem to care about us. We, we have these events we do together. And we said, well, where did you used to work? And they said, oh, how much time do you have? And they would tell us these stories about <laughs> places they used to work. And maybe we were naive. We never worked anywhere else. But we, that's where we said, hmm, maybe there's something here. And it wasn't by design. People said, well, where did this sensibility come from? I can only say it's because our parents raised us as, as, as boys that had good values. My dad said, always be kind, never burn a bridge, treat people with respect. And so we treated people like we had been treated growing up. What we thought was important turned out that's not the way it works in many businesses today. Um, and we may have taken that naivete, to, but realized, hey, we want to be successful. We want to make money. We want to create an enduring business. If we double down on this, then we can differentiate ourselves from the competition in a commodity business like a call center and charge more than other people and start to see this connection. And you're right that, that people at the top uh, in, in any investment, any business makes is going to say, what's the ROI of that? And so right. it's hard for me to sit here and say, well, it's just a feel good thing and you should do it because <laughs> everybody else is doing it. It's going to get, you're going to get greater people, but you're going to be able to measure things in a way that you can definitely tie it to the financials. I, I uh, in the introduction, talked about how I worked at Stericycle. Well, Stericycle is a company that bought my entrepreneurial business almost um, now 12 years ago. And they were a big public company in healthcare. And when I left um, my company, they didn't, they had said, so, you know, Paul, what do you want to do? Well, I didn't really want to run my business any longer as part of now this behemoth, if I knew that I didn't, that wasn't going to be right for me. I said, I want to be chief culture officer of this 25,000 person public company, because I want to see if what works for small works for big. And if mm -hmm. you give me the opportunity, I'm going to take that opportunity and you don't even have to pay me. It's just such a great opportunity for me to sort of test out this theory that I've had. And my business wasn't tiny. We grew to 40 million in revenue and 400 employees, but nothing like these big public companies with this outside pressure. And I remember going to these board meetings and, and they would look at me like, who are you? Why are you here? We've got this tremendous track record as a public company on Wall Street. What do we need this for? And I felt this, this existential challenge to say, I'm going to prove over time that this makes sense to you. And, I, and we're not just uh, blowing wind here for no reason, that there is this connection. And so we started to measure not only the employee engagement, but the, the relationship between employee engagement and their own customer loyalty surveys and saw a direct correlation there. And then we look at, in their, in their case, they had multiple locations throughout the country. We looked at 200 locations and found out the most profitable locations had the most engaged employees. And we even looked at things like turnover. And because it's a big company, we were able to track dollars that uh, I worked with the CFO to say that we reduced uh, voluntary attrition by 5%, which was almost $40 million directly to the bottom line, right? Now you start getting people's attention who said, hmm, okay, this actually makes financial sense as well. And so you can't just promise that you have to deliver on that. You have to track that. And, and look, law firms are used to tracking stuff, um, metrics, and, and this is no different, but you have to commit to doing it long-term. And I can pretty much guarantee you'll see those results down the line. That's perfect because 
attorneys by nature are skeptical. So I love that you had a, a big enough data set that you can crunch the numbers with and prove it. And I think I, I love that you actually said receptionist. I was in a mid-sized firm when I was a law firm administrator and we had had a whole string of receptionists and it was the lowest paid job. Nobody ever went out to the front, you know, and there would be lots of clients out there. And so we had this one in, uh, employee who was not great at being a paralegal, but everyone in the whole firm loved her. She was just sweet and charming and engaging. And so I, they were like, you're gonna have to let her go. And I said, what if we pay her more and put her out as the receptionist? And they balked at that. And I said, I guarantee it. It matters. Instead of she was worried that she was going to be fired, she knew it wasn't going well. And instead we featured her and I could hear her talking with the clients. I could hear her on the phone. She changed the whole energy in the firm by being put out front like that. And it, it does make a difference, but it's kind of like flipping the whole model of a law firm upside down because you're, you know, it's the lawyers that come first. Um, and I think they forget. The other thing that happens at law firms is if you are a summer clerk after your second year of law school, they will wine you and dine you and you'll go to fun retreats and give you tickets to things. And then when you show up as a regular associate, uh, they give you your office that is windowless and now you're going to build thousands of hours. So it's like they tricked you. And I yeah. almost feel like that is the model of big law. I've heard it over and over again. So if, if you're a, how, how does a person walking in? So your daughter is doing a job search right now. You said, what, what should someone be looking for to, to determine what the real culture is um, at any organization? How can you figure it out? Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing is if, if your first interviews are with people that aren't very pleasant, I get. Yeah. Uh, it's such a great question, uh, but I want to, I want to respond to your, your point there about what you did with that woman to uh, mm -hmm. give her a new opportunity because uh, the fact is that there are people in every law firm, as in every business, who love this stuff and would love to champion it. And we had culture committees. And even at this big company, we had culture ambassadors all over the country where we could go to every location and start to talk about this stuff. And there's always going to be somebody in the back room that raises their hands and says, I want to be an ambassador. I want to be a part of this. And they still have full-time jobs doing other things but they eat this stuff up. So it's important for leaders to, to realize that the passion is in the room and all you got to do is find that passion, give them opportunities and, and sort of let them go. Um, and uh, you don't have to hire um, a new position or anything. Uh, eventually you might have somebody who's really focusing on the culture. We had a, a, a small HR team at our company and the person that headed HR, honestly, was pretty bad at the bricks and mortar H&R, HR work, but she was incredible at having an ear to the, what was going on with people, listening to people, planning these wonderful events. And so we made, uh, Lara was her name, our queen of fun and laughter. And that was her, <laughs> that was her full-time job. Um, and she held it until we, we uh, sold the company. She now still remains many years with this much larger company having that same kind of impact, but it was taking and recognizing that talent, realizing that they may not be in the right spot and giving them the freedom and the budget and the recognition to do what they do well. Now, as you're in your, to your question, when we're applying for jobs, and I'm very sensitive to this because I, as an employer, want to make sure that that person who's applying to work with us asks us lots of questions and says, mm -hmm. because I want them to be fulfilled. That's ultimately what I live for in my career is to make sure people are fulfilled in their careers. And if not to have the courage to make the tough decision to do something else or to move on. And that's something that is very hard for people to do. But it starts at that early stage. And, and yeah, my daughter, um, who doesn't know what she wants to do yet, is telling me about her friends who uh, she says, everybody already knows what they're going to do. They're, they're getting wined and dined by these law firms and accounting firms. They're getting six-figure offers already for when they come out. And, and they are, they're already set. And I don't even know what I want to do. And I try to tell her, I said, let me just tell you something. I, I changed five times in those early mm -hmm. days. I, I was supposed to be a doctor when I went to college, so I got a D in calculus. 
I changed, you know, <laughs> I became a history major and, and just ended up going to law school. And two, and then two years later, I started business. You know, I said a lot of those people aren't going to end up doing what they're doing right now. And the reason is that they're not going to be satisfied with it. And she said, you know, Dad, you're right. I already have people who have come back from their summer internships and said, this is nothing like they said it was going to be. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and so... So we have to, as people who are going to work in these companies, we have to stop and ask questions if it, if it is something important to us. You know, when you're young, you're trying to get that job, you're sort of desperate, you're happy that they're even talking to you. But the fact is, when we become employees, we deserve to be valued wherever we work. And if we're not valued, then we need to realize that there are other places, you know, the, the, you talked about the small giants community that we started. These are companies that live and breathe this way, values and purpose. Um, they may not make the news, but they're out there. And, and so if you're a, a person who feels like that they're not valued, that they're not treated well, that they don't have opportunities to learn and grow and feel cared about, then you got to move on. And, and the good thing about newer generations is they want something more than a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. so yep. they but, how do you ask these questions? So, yeah, you go on, you go on to the website of the prospective law firm, and you, and you see, oh, yeah, they have they have values and they have a purpose or a mission statement. That that's good. But you know what? In the interview, I'm going to ask about that. So tell me about your mission statement. <laughs> tell me about your values. Um, I noticed it on the website, and I really resonate with those. But how are those lived on a day to day basis? And then, and if you get sort of a, a a blank stare or a, a long <laughs> pause, then that person's really not sure. But if they say, oh my gosh, uh, let me tell you that we have these celebrations each week. We have tough conversations. We have open and honest dialogue and feedback sessions. And it's not just about the fun. And this is how we make tough decisions because we go back to our core values and uh, then you go, aha, they're living this stuff. And so you have to, in your little arsenal, um, not just ask about the work, not ask about the pay and the benefits. Tell me about the organization. Tell me about the owners. What's the history of it? What's the dynamic? What's really important? And how do you handle adversity when adversity comes around? Perfect. I, and also too, I think a lot of companies think, Hey, we are, we're offering you a great salary. The benefit, the benefits are fantastic. We're good. You know, we're done. That's it. But it's, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. It's so much more. I, I mean, I agree 100%. Mm -hmm. So the traditional law firm work environment, it typically has a command and control leadership style. Is it challenging to overcome these deeply ingrained norms? If, if you've seen that type of, you know, style in any company, not just law firms. It is really challenging. And the reason it's challenging is that command and control worked for many, many years. And that saw results in, in companies growing at a pace that they had never grown before. But what we have to do is we have to realize that times have changed and command and control doesn't work anymore. The newer generations, the younger generations won't respond to that. They want to make the world a better place. They want flexibility in the work environment. They want to feel valued in what they do, and that doesn't come from command and control. And I can only say that now with a little bit more confidence because after I uh, sold my company and I went to work at Stericycle, I had never worked for a big company. Now I'm look, go at this corporate office and there's thousands of people, and I see these command and control leaders that had been very effective and very successful growing their careers over the years. And my job was to, in part, work with some of these command and control leaders to try to get them to, I guess, see the light and see that there was maybe another way to do things. And I can think of one guy in particular whose name was Chris, who headed up the sales organization. This guy had been getting promotion after promotion, had 200 people under him uh, directly and responsible for, the, you know, a multi-billion uh, revenue line for the company had great success, hitting out of the ballpark every year. But one of the things we instituted after I got there was what we called an upward evaluation where employees could also uh, talk about how they feel about their direct supervisors. And so I think uh, maybe in my second year there, I would look at these results and, and Chris was getting slammed by the people in his organization. 
And, and I said, you know, I'm going to see if I have the courage to have a conversation with Chris. I was at the cop, you know, corporate office one day and I pulled him aside. I said, Chris, by the way, congratulations on another great year um, from a financial standpoint. But it can't really feel good when you look at the results of those surveys. Am I right about that? He said, Paul, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, to be honest, I was shocked. I always have thought that I was a good leader, but this is telling me that, that maybe I'm not what I thought I was. And so I had to tread very carefully. But I said, look, Chris, would you be open to the idea that with just some minor changes in your style, you could not only continue to have this financial success, you could probably have more financial success. And yet you'd always, you also have this warm and fuzzy feeling of what it's like to impact people's lives. And if you're up to it, I'll meet with you on some regular basis. We'll just talk about these small changes that you could make. And so he did, and we met, and then he would start to tell me and show me emails from his team members that said, Chris, what happened to you? You're, you're a changed <laughs> guy. And now instead of walking into this meeting and go, okay, where are we on these four things, Mr. Command and Control? He'd say, so let's remind ourselves, what's the vision? And how are we going to get there? And what's going on with you guys? And on the weekend when they went bowling, you went now. And it was okay to ask people on Monday how their weekend was. You know, just lower the defenses, bring the wall down, show people that you really care about them. And he started to get this tremendous response from his team leaders. And so it made me think about things much differently because when I first got to this big company, I would look at these leaders and I would say, these people are real jerks, these command and control leaders. And then I realized I'm wrong about that. They don't know any different. They weren't taught how to do this. They were, weren't wired like maybe I was wired with, you know, great parents and good brothers where we never knew any different. You know, I kind of came into this. I didn't, I didn't design this. It's just the way I am. But they're not wired that way and they were never taught these things. So let's give them a break. Let's hope that they're open to it. And if they're open to it, let's give them the training and the development they need. And the, and the fact is, even with that, we're not going to succeed all the time. And so that's where we're going to have to make some tough decisions. And if we're committed as an organization to build a culture of inclusivity and intimacy, then when those uh, command and control leaders stick around and try to poison the environment, then we better have the guts to make the tough decisions and move them out. Or, as we used to do in our company, make people feel so uncomfortable as <laughs> that negative influencer that they're going to self-select out. Right. Right. I love that you're kind of their therapist uh, in this process. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a completely unlicensed and unqualified <laughs> business therapist. Wait, that's about I what think I do. That probably, I'm thinking Chris maybe rethought some of his personal relationships after seeing the change that he had with his employees, his direct reports. Um, you know, that shift of seeing them as humans and asking about their weekend, that, that probably affected other parts of his life. No question. Um, so a lot of law firms or, you know, uh, these big companies, it's kind of, th that's the way we've always done it. They don't know anything different. And we talked about, so when you're starting with a new company, you start with the assessment, see what's going on. But can you give us an outline of the process you follow when working with a company to create that positive culture? Um, so, I mean, obviously step one is not go buy a ping pong table. You know, we covered that, but, but if you've never seen this or felt this or done this, people need like a tangible step one, step two. So like, what are you telling them to do when you walk in after you've done the assessment? Yeah. Uh, well, great question. Let me clarify too. I'm not a trainer or okay. uh, a consultant. I don't do any of that. I'm just a practitioner, just like right. everybody else. So if anything, uh, uh, I, my credibility comes from the fact that I, I'm in the game, just like all of you. I, I have nothing to sell. I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what, what I'm just doing is evangelizing these things, right. especially at this point in my career, because I firmly believe that they work. So in the case of um, a company like you're talking about, let's say it's a law firm that says, you know, okay, what is the step-by-step -step approach? The first is to recognize that this is important and to get commitment from the most senior people that they want to do something about this. The second is to, to sit with starting with the leadership team and then hopefully a 
cross-functional team of people across the company, if it doesn't already exist, to pull them together and say, hey, along with everything else we're going on, we've realized that, that, that um, looking at our culture and assessing our culture and maybe changing over time is something that's important that we want to do and we're committed to. And then um, finding those champions internally so that you're giving them permission, maybe some budget, not that a lot of this takes much money, um, and the, the freedom to create this plan and to execute on the plan and to get feedback on it over time. And you can create a committee. At my company, Barrel, we had a, a culture committee that ended up being up to 70 people with all these subcommittees and, and all of that. But you only have to start out with one champion and, and a few other participants. But don't make this a leadership initiative. This is a company initiative. Okay. And you want voices from the front line. You want that receptionist on the committee. You want that mm -hmm. that uh, uh, assistant that's you know in the back room on the committee if it's something that that is important to them. But you want also a couple partners on the committee. And I guarantee you, at the even leadership level, you're going to find people that are into it. Um, and then you have to start with the basics. What's the foundation? It is the purpose, vision, and values and the clarity around that. And so if that doesn't already exist in a way that is beyond the poster on the wall, then we would suggest going through that process, either facilitated or not facilitated. And there's many different ways to do visioning. Uh, one way that, that I've always liked is um, comes from Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and people are familiar with, um, mm -hmm. that was really a, a three-phase process. One is that we looked at purpose. What is our purpose? And purpose being defined as how we make the world a better place. It's not that we provide great legal services or any of that. It's not what we do. It's who we are. How do you do that in a phrase? But it could take a day with a group of people sitting around to really articulate what that is. Secondly, what are our core values? And, and core values being defined as those things, those behaviors that no matter what else in our business changes will never change could be a phrase, it could be a series of words, but, but that's an exercise to go through, again, an inclusive exercise. And I went through this process, by the way, at Stericycle, this multi-billion dollar firm by bringing in leaders from all over the world, and they had never been through this before. And I took them through this exercise over several days, and it was just transformative. Third was this idea of what you think of as the typical vision, which is to say we've put ourselves in a, uh, at a point in time, five years from now, 10 years from now, and now we've written out, what does it look like? What is our business like at that time? Not in terms of revenue or any of that, but what is the picture we could paint if we could dream it? And it's never going to be right. It's never going to be perfect, but it's a wonderful exercise to go through. Not only that, it tells those people on the team all the way down to that receptionist that they're a part of something special that there is a bigger picture of what we're striving for, that this is your role in helping us get there. And this is what's in it for you if you help us get there. And people love that structure. They love to have the guidelines. And it's, I used to say it's almost spiritual that we'd have the, these core values in place because we'd be in meetings and uh, we have a client that say to us, can you take on this, this uh, particular project for us? And it was maybe very outside the lines of what we typically do. And, and so from a revenue standpoint, it made complete sense. And we're sitting there with the leadership and someone raises their hand and says, but wait a minute, one of our core values is never sacrifice quality. And I think if we take on this project, we're going to sacrifice the quality of the work we already do. And I, it just warmed my heart. It was like, aha, they're applying one of those core values. Or another situation comes up where an employee does something that seems to violate section 3C of our employee manual. But a leader raises their hand and says, but wait a minute, one of our core values is always do the right thing. And doing the right thing in this case is not what's in that manual. It's something completely different. And I was like, oh my gosh, these guys are really using this stuff to make decisions. That's when you know that culture is sticking. That's such an excellent point because you're talking about getting everyone involved because if they didn't help create it, they're not going to, there's no buy-in 
um, so in, involving these people, um, because I wonder how many law firms have said, let's discuss our employee manual if they've even read right. it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or what vision that our, you know, the consultant that created our website stuck that in there. You know, those, you, when you really start to kick the tires, if, is it part of the firm? Um, I think that's, that's a good point. Absolutely. And we touched on this a little bit earlier. We said, you know, how we, we spend so much of our day day, our, our week at work, you know, more so than we do at home with our family and especially attorneys, they're known for working really long hours. Is it, is it possible to foster a fun atmosphere in a law firm? And, you know, how can it, what have you seen when you've gone into law firms to implement this? Is it, does it enhance, I'm sure it enhances their overall culture, but is it, how how did you make that work? <laughs> yeah, fun and law firm right, don't go exactly. together. Yeah, very that's naturally. what I was trying to get yeah. at. Yeah. But try working in a hospital where you're trying <laughs> to save lives, and how do you have fun there? Oh, right. Exactly. Um, I, I wrote this book with the CEO of a large hospital, and um, and it was all about how to create that environment, and and it might be for him. Um, at three in the morning, going to the hospital and just serving cupcakes to the nurses just to show that, hey, I'm here for you, I'm supporting you. It's a series of little small things that we can do for our people. And it's gonna be it's gonna be really uncomfortable, to be honest, with law firm leadership who's not used to this stuff at all. And it feels like it's taking them out of their comfort zone. And I happen to be a total introvert, pretty reserved, but once you once you are able to get yourself out of your own comfort zone and participate, it feels really good. I was the one that would be, um, and just even from my law background and, and even in business, I'm that 24-7 guy connected all the time, love to be working, love to be responding, love to be on the phone, making a deal, getting our next customer. And I literally had a yellow post-it note on my computer that just said, walk the floor, get your butt out of your seat, go out to the call center floor and just walk around. Just look at people and say, how are you doing today? Um, what are you working on? What's going on? And it's just amazing the response you're going to get. And so we have to start to build this discipline into our day to stop and take 10 minutes and go out and do these. And it's really hard when you first start it, but then it really starts to pay off over time and it feels good. And then you become more comfortable. Um, we used to do holiday videos every year where, you know, I get dressed up in these stupid outfits and someone would write a script and I would just like, whatever you want me to do. But I realized that that 10 minute video that we would show at our holiday party just meant everything to people because they just saw me as just one of them. And so mm -hmm. we have to start to bring these walls down over time and, and how to create that fun environment is a question for those people that are working in that business and to ask them what's fun for you. And look, to me, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's just life. We are so connected to what we're doing, not only at work, but in our families, that let's embrace that idea. Let's make our families part of it. So we used to have family day, and we would close down the parking lot and bring in carnival rides and invite the families. We would send uh, coloring books um, at the end of the month to our the, the kids of our uh, employees to get them involved. We wanted the whole family connected to what we were doing. Um, we'd send things home with them to make sure that we made that connection because we gave permission for people to talk about their family at work and to engage in those kind of conversations. And so it's something that may sound really foreign, but when you start doing it and you take baby steps and you do it in small ways, people really will embrace this over time. And it's nothing expensive. Most of it costs nothing. It's just the ability to change our perspective. And uh, we have, uh, you know, a couple of law firms right now that are involved in the small giants community. And we have a leadership academy and we train next-gen leaders on these practices. And the reason we train next-gen leaders is because we want to go beyond the owner or the managing partners because it's those next-gen leaders that are going to see that these practices sustain over time in these in these companies. And it's no different for the law firms and, and, you know, partners are going through our program and they're coming back and saying, you know, I get all this, but 
I'm under such pressure right now because I have to drive this much business. I got this many, you know, hours I have to bill for um, and all the traditional stuff that's going on in law firms. But I get this or I get it, but our managing partner still doesn't get it and is not giving me the freedom to do it. So I'm not saying this is easy, but once you get that commitment from the top and we start to one by one kind of train those middle managers in these small practices of, of engaging our team members, it's going to transform our, our business over time. When I went to the very large public company, what I saw was great support I had at the top with the CEO and the board. I saw that the front line loved this stuff because they loved the attention. But I saw a group of middle managers, which, you know, numbered in the thousands, that were those people that were the great workers who the company gave a new title as manager, but gave them no training on what it meant to be a true leader in that organization. All that was mattered to them was hitting a target. And so they had no tools to do this kind of work. And so that's where the commitment came from and where our focus was, okay, how do we deal with this middle management group and one by one give them the tools and training to do this? So this is this takes commitment, and we and um, and again we can we can rest on the excuse that well you know what but this is a law firm or you know what we're all working eighty hours a week. I say none of that matters. You're not the only industry that's wired this way um, that that has survived in this command and control world. And if you don't believe me, believe those younger people that you're bringing into the firm. Even the younger partners, they want something different. Makes so much sense. I think you also have to ask your employees what it is they want. If they're already spending a lot of time at work, maybe mandatory fun outside of work hours is not the way to go. You know, people don't necessarily. So acknowledging that they have families is a big step. Like, so when you were saying you're including them, that that's a lovely thing. I'm going to tell you two ridiculous things that I did at one of the firms I was at. Uh, there was a real, so many firms, it's the support staff is very separate than mm-hmm. the partners. It's almost like an us against them. The law firm administrator is in this weird demilitarized zone in the middle <laughs> trying to advocate, but also implement, you know, the wishes of the owners. Um, and so there's this disconnect. So I, they looked like, at me like I had two heads, but there were two partners. <laughs> and so on their birthday, you know, every law firm, oh, there's a cake and you go in the kitchen and get your piece of cake, you know, that kind of thing and stuff. So I decided that we would turn it upside down. So one of the partners was obsessed with ice cream. And so instead of everyone like going to the kitchen to get something, I took one of the mailroom carts and turned it into an ice ice cream Sunday bar. And I sent that birthday partner around to serve people mm-hmm. at their stations. Mm-hmm. He went round and round and he, and he loved it. It was mm-hmm. funny. It was like he was a little That's kid. Funny. He got to be the ice cream man. <laughs> and then I had another partner that ate so much candy and his birthday was near Halloween. So I, same thing, I got a cart. I got all kinds of candy loaded up his cart and I called it reverse trick or treating. And he had to go around the firm and hand out candy to everyone on his birthday. And it was, it was silly you know, it was so cheap to implement and stuff, but for them to be serving the people that serve them, I think was the the bigger message I was trying to send and everybody loved it. Nobody had to, you know, we didn't stop billing. It, it didn't interrupt everyone's uh, flow, but just silly things. Yeah, but, but it's not, it's not silly. It's purposeful and it makes sense and it worked and it will continue to work. Uh, Simon Sinek wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last which is just along that same philosophy. And, and uh, when my brothers and I had this call center, it was a 24-hour call center. And, you know, yeah, we were the ones sleeping on a cot overnight in shifts when we first started it out. But then as we grew and you know, we had other people doing that um, with us and for us, and and uh, we would be there at 7 in the morning with that cart bringing muffins around on the call center floor. Mm-hmm. Or when we first uh, moved our business to Texas from Los Angeles, we commuted for years back and forth every Tuesday through Thursday. And we would show up sometimes in the middle of the night and there would only be uh, four people in the call center. And we would take a cab from the airport before we went to our apartment. And we'd just stop and walk in and there'd and be those four people there. And we'd just sit and hang out with them in the middle of the night or bring them a pizza or something like that. And, and that's what people want, is they want their leaders to be just like them, and they want them to feel like that they're human, that they care about them, and they will go to the ends of the earth in, in terms of loyalty if you show them that. And even even the candy, you remind me of how we, in our leadership academy, we bring in these cohorts of people every year that go through a one-year program, 
in the orientation, what's the first thing we do as we, we fill out the form to get to know them better? We want to know their favorite candy. We want to know their favorite drink. We keep track of their, their hobbies and, and things that they might collect. And then during the year, we use those opportunities to create these small touches. And so one day they're going to show up at one of these meetings and there's going to be that $100,000 bar in front of them. And they go, what? How did you know that? And they don't even remember that six months ago they told us what their favorite candy was. But that little moment made a big difference for them. Paul, you're speaking my language. I give every yes. employee when they start with me a survey of their, I call it my preference survey. Yeah. And I end it with, yeah. is there anything you want me to know about you? And people share the most interesting things about themselves, but like at their three month performance evaluation, I give them their favorite candy bar. And they're like, how did you know? They have, they have no memory <laughs> that I already have. Yes. I want to give special props to Christine because she is amazing with that. And she gave me my favorite candy one time. And yeah, we they made... get their favorite dessert on their birthday. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and you my remember favorite that. store was Home Depot and we had that connection. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it is, I have to say it does, it's, it is very special. Um, so in, and I watched one of your um, online interviews and this really stuck out to me. You were talking about how companies should um, take caution when they're implementing changes, even if it's a very small change, because it can be a negative impact on their employee morale. And in the interview, you were talking about um, this company, that, I believe it was um, maybe like truck drivers and the company used to every Thanksgiving give them like a turkey or it was like something very small, you know, for their dinner, but they took it away and it really caused an uprising and it made, you know, the employees like, you know, question like what's happening, you know, even if, you know, the company thought it was just a very small thing, it wasn't a big deal to take away, but to the employees, they really took a hit to that. So how should leaders approach, you know, change, even if it's a very small change, you know, they may not think it's a big deal, but it really can be a big deal. It's a great point, Jamie. What, what, uh, I, I know exactly the story you're referring to. And, and the point there is that when we do begin this work, remember the, at the, beginning I said this is not a a project with a destination it's a journey and we have to commit to it over time and the risk is that when we implement some of these changes and we put some of these programs in place these small touches we we establish maybe a culture budget and and we buy candy for people or we have these traditions um, or these events or we now instituted some training that was outside of the day-to-day -day job, but we started offering training to people. What happens when things start to go south at the, in the company? We start to take away the things that matter most, the small things, because as leaders we go, well, you know, they don't really need this. So maybe we can't have that event right now because we're trying to cut costs. We're trying to maintain profitability. And so we make this huge mistake of taking out the things that actually matter the most to people that are doing the work. And it's a huge mistake. And so we have to go slowly into implement these changes. But if they're really working, we have to commit to them over the long term, because if we start pulling them away, it's going to do great damage to the organization. In that case, that was when I did work with Stericycle and they had uh, they, they were a medical waste disposable disposal company that uh, got into the call center business. So that's why they acquired us a few years prior, but that was their primary business. So you think of these smelly treatment plants all over the country and these, that tattooed truck drivers taking this stuff back and forth from hospitals and, you know, the, and it's, it's a really tough job. I mean, half of these employees didn't have even have company email. And so as chief culture officer, I get a call one day from a, um, a manager at one of the locations in, in California, in Vernon, California, and said, Paul, we need your help. Is there some sort of culture budget we can have access to? Because in our location, they announced that because it's a fourth, fourth quarter and that they were looking to cut costs over the course of the entire company, uh, corporate said, we need to cut costs. So the manager just announced, hey guys, we need to cut costs. Um, we got to, even if we look at these little things, everything small helps and adds up to something. So I know we're used to giving you guys these Thanksgiving pies every year, but this year we're not going to have them. Hopefully that's okay with you. 
Um, but we're going to contribute to this cost cutting as is the rest of the company. And there was like an uproar. And so they announced this at the 4 a.m. Wednesday morning truck drivers meeting oh. to the team. Oh, yeah. and, and A slap in the yeah. face. Yeah. And so some guy, some guy stands up at the meeting and says, um, wait a minute. I just saw the stock price this morning. It's at an all-time high. Oh. And you're telling me you can't buy us a friggin' pie? And these mm-hmm. truck drivers yeah. walked yeah. out to their trucks that day with their heads low. And just changed mm-hmm. everything. So he's somebody's calling me saying, "Is there money, you know, to do this?" I said, "Okay, let's slow down. That's not even the point. I want to go back to say, why did that local manager make that decision? The local manager made that decision because up on high, someone issued an edict that said we have to cut costs, and they just listened and did it. They didn't think about it. They didn't think about it. if they went to that same drivers meeting and they said, "Hey, guys." Uh, we're part of a corporate initiative to cut costs between now and the end of the year. We could use your help. Are there some ideas that you could help us to maybe shave some costs? I guarantee you they would have come up with things that you give them that doesn't even matter to them right now. They might say, you know, you have those Taco Tuesdays and that doesn't really matter. (laughs) So, you know, you could take that away. But if you involve them in this process, then... It, they're going to take a complete different approach. But you start taking away this stuff, you've completely lost trust. And now they're not even going to be doing a good job. They're not loyal to you going forward. So yeah. that little story, I mean, it was a big lesson learned for me as well as the whole organization. And then check your stock price and come yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're looking at it. So uh, be aware of it. Yeah. Okay, last question. I'm sure that you have won over some of our skeptical listeners. So if they're saying right now, okay, I'm going to try this, we like to give them something actionable. What advice would you give to someone, a leader at a law firm that wants to to start this? How can they get started and what should they prioritize? What's, What's something they can do immediately to turn things around, to start the journey? Yeah, I think it's one is being self aware. And, and understanding that even if it's not stuff you're used to, even if it makes you uncomfortable um, as a leader, and look, any good leader has got to be open to new ways of doing things. Just recognize that and commit to that and start learning. There's some, you know, we like to say that, that uh, even in my company um, all, over all these years that we were looked at as, as very unique, uh, that these practices of, of concentrating on culture uh, made us like a stepchild in the industry. And at, at, at that time, I looked at it and said, yeah, that's great. We are unique. It's a differentiator for us. But I am so committed to this. I think this is the way business needs to be done overall. And the good thing is, is we're seeing these trends, right? You're hearing about culture more than you ever have. You're seeing transformation in, the, in these companies. And so people have to get on board because people want something different, particularly coming out of the pandemic and just even the way we work. Uh, is changing. You talk about AI and the threat that people are feeling in AI. Well, Mm -hmm. to me, we need to look at AI as an opportunity, not as a threat, but as an ally. And yes, maybe it'll take some of those rote tasks away from us, but it doesn't have that emotion. It doesn't allow us to, uh, it doesn't take away the creativity and the innovation that is in our hearts. And that's going to actually free up each of us to do more and to do our best work. And so I don't think we should push back on that. I think that that if we start to get out there um, and, and we're uncomfortable as leaders and, and want to do this work, you got to find peers. And there are organizations out there, whether there's support groups, other uh, purpose-driven organizations, not just the small giants community. There's a number of them out there that are growing that are focused on not just growth for growth's sake. Yes, we all want to grow. We all want to make money. We all want to be successful. But if we want to make the world a better place, if we want to have an impact on people's lives, then you want to find people that think the same way and you want to learn from them. And everybody wants to find peers that they can learn from and they can teach and mentor along the way. And so that's kind of where I'd start. And then the last thing I'd say, which I started with, is we've got to be vulnerable with our own teams and let them know that that. We like this stuff. We're committed, but to be honest, we're not. We don't know how to do it, and we want to do it together. And then give some rope and some and um, find those ambassadors 
and just start that plan. Look at that mission, vision, values, articulate it, go through that exercise. Then give people the opportunity to look at uh, all of these various aspects of the culture, whether it's our recognition programs, our feedback programs, how we engage in the local community, how we have tough conversations, how we adjust our hiring to make sure that we're screening for culture so that people fit, how we're engaging in a way that we can make tough decisions to get rid of people that don't fit. Because having a great culture doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it's so loose that we just let everybody walk all over us. It's having the discipline to make the tough decisions to get rid of people that don't matter or that bring the whole place down. And, and there's a discipline to that as well. And lastly, I just say, commit to it long term. And while you may even not feel like you believe it, give yourself a, time, a year or two to start to feel it. And I guarantee you'll be converted forever going forward. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Paul Spiegelman, for joining us today. Paul, if our listeners have questions, how can they learn more about the Small Giants community and find your books, podcasts, or interviews? Well, thank you. They can go to paul at smallgiants.org. Reach out to me. Happy to help any way I can. And um, there's lots of resources that are available that are free uh, for people. Um, again, I got nothing to sell except the idea that this stuff is important. And I would love nothing more, even based on my short legal career, to see law firms one by one come on board with these ideas and commit to it long term. So um, it's uh, I, I will tell you that this idea that you have to pick one or the other, you know, financial success or impact um, is BS. You can have both. You can do well and do good at the same time. So um, if there's anything I could do to help people along the way, it's my pleasure to do it and really appreciate uh, um, being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. We've we've really enjoyed this. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.